Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. So quick note about today's interview. The architect of Dr. W.D. Broadhurst's brutal murder, Gladys Broadhurst, was obsessed with films, dark films. At a certain point in my conversation with Patrick Gallagher, Leave Her to Heaven is mentioned, a 1945 movie that Gladys absolutely loved. My guest summarizes the plot, but it's the plot of Gladys's other favorite film, 1946's The Postman Always Rings Twice. It's understandably confusing, as both came out around the same time, and both were likely inspiration for Gladys's machinations. I had never seen Leave Her to Heaven before our interview, but found it soon after on YouTube, where it's free, by the way, and beautifully restored. I watched it, and all I can say is it's highly recommended. There's a shocking twist in the middle of the film that made my jaw drop. Uh, Riveting. Anyway, I wanted to mention this now to avoid any confusion, just in case I have some 1940s film buffs listening. All right, let's get things going. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm pleased to have as my guest today Patrick Gallagher. He's had quite an interesting life. He's been a farm laborer, forest firefighter, process server, retail store manager, preacher, and dishwasher. However, he finally found the career he loved managing a business in international logistics. And his book is called Till Death Do Us, a true crime story of bigamy and murder. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you have a very special connection to this case, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, My grandfather was the lead trial attorney for uh, the defendant, for her murder when she was on trial 
for first degree murder. And um, the trial occurred the same year I was born. Earlier in the year, I was born in the fall. But all my life, I've grown up with this story as part of our family tradition. And so it was very exciting for me to actually get information about this murder and the woman who was on trial and do a lot of research about her and her background. And uh, it was fascinating for me and made special because of our family connection to the story. It's always fun to talk to first-time authors, especially inspired by a family story. When did you first hear about your grandfather's involvement in the case? Well, of course, I heard the story just in very brief, rough terms uh, all of my life. But uh, after my dad died in 1980, uh, I inherited the family trunk, which my dad had inherited from his parents as well. And in it were old family photos of my dad and his siblings when they were children and, and uh, uh, letters from my grandfather and different family members. But in that trunk were some documents that pertain to this story. And uh, they're kind of an essential element to this story. So I knew I had those letters. Even 40 years ago, I knew I had them, but I didn't know what to do with them. And it wasn't until I retired in 2016 that uh, I got the idea that this story really needed to be told, and maybe I could write a book about it, but I still only knew the barest elements of the story. And so with the assistance of one of my relatives, who's very uh, efficient at looking up genealogies, I started doing background research on Gladys Broadhurst, who was my grandfather's client. And wow, a whole cornucopia of information came out about her that I had no idea about. And the more I learned, the more I knew this story has to be told. And um, I never I never dreamed of being a writer, but I just felt like it would be wrong not to get this information out for people to read that are interested in stories like this. That makes sense. So the letters in your grandfather's trunk, uh, these are the ones that are printed in your book, the letters between Gladys and Willis Broadhurst, primarily. That's right. They're letters, they're essentially love letters from the victim of the murder to uh, the woman that he married and ultimately was on trial for first-degree murder in his death. It's, it's interesting that your grandfather had them. He, he just kept them after the trial was over. Well, actually, they never saw the light of day during the trial. And that's one of the interesting elements of this story is that she had these letters and the sheriff said, if you try to take those with you, we'll have to take custody of them. So she turned and handed them 
to her lawyer. She had four lawyers on the case, and this was one of the other lawyers that was with her at that time. She turned and handed them to him, and they disappeared. No one ever heard of them or saw them again. And they ended up in your grandfather's possession. That's right. And it's not until I published this book that anyone has read these letters other than my grandfather. And I don't know if my dad ever bothered to read them, but then I read them and decided to write this story. And the letters are kind of staggered through your book. And they, and they give a really interesting insight into Gladys. Well, and, and, and not only her, Eric, but also the victim. Um, I think one of the key questions that you have to really think about as you read this book is, why is she the way she is, and why is he the way he is? I think the way he responded to her was equally perplexing. I, I definitely want to ask you about that in a bit. So, Gladys, the central figure in your book, the person who would ultimately be tried for murder, as you've said, you don't write much about her childhood, but she did grow up Mormon, and the middle child of five children, two older and two younger brothers. That's right. Is there a moment uh, you can point to when she started making questionable life choices? Well, being the only daughter of a family that had five children, I, I get the impression she was pretty spoiled. Um, her family really seemed to cater to her strange activities. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things is that she married multiple times. And uh, every time she got married, uh, not every time, but most of the times, family members are right there helping her celebrate this new marriage. And so that tells me that she pretty well got away with whatever she wanted to. Uh, so she got married for the first time in May of 1927, right? That's right. Uh, that was her first husband in May of 1927, and she was only 20 years old at the time. And then would begin this pattern of marriages, uh, short marriages usually, and she would often meet her next husband while still married. We did a lot of research looking for uh, her marriages and her divorces, and we found uh, public records of all of her marriages, the dates and the names of the people she married, uh, the places of the marriages. That's all uh, absolutely accurate in the book. But we couldn't find any divorces except one, and that's the husband that she was married to when she met Dr. Broadhurst, or when she, actually, that's not when she met him, but that's when she married him. She had known him 20 years earlier, but um, when she married the doctor, that's when her husband initiated uh, divorce proceedings. But that's the only divorce we've been able to find. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if, you know, just those records were lost somewhere, or if she didn't bother with divorces 
it's it's a good interesting question to me. Yeah. Uh, you do have photographs of her in your book, and she was beautiful, like movie star beautiful. Yeah, she's described by anybody who describes her as a very attractive woman. Between her second and third marriages, you write, she actually traveled with her family singing in her family band. That's right, Eric. She and the whole family were quite musically inclined. And uh, that was the longest period she went unmarried is between that second and third husband. And uh, and I, I, I find that interesting as well because the one thing I've noticed is people who are gifted with special talents seem to also have some special burdens to carry. I just, I've always seen a connection there. And I wonder how that played into the way she was. Right. It was sometime during her second marriage, right, in Burley, Idaho, where she struck up an acquaintance with Willis David Broadhurst. Yes, and uh, and he was a chiropractor, and he was 31 years old. She was 20 years old. Um, it might even have been during her first marriage. But, uh, you know, there's 11 years difference between the two. She was his patient. But I get the impression that there may have been more than a client, you know, doctor-patient relationship there. They may have had some kind of uh, romantic relationship. And again, I don't know this. I'm just kind of reading between the lines. But she left town and moved to another town. He did also. He left Burley, Idaho, and moved his practice to Caldwell, Idaho. Whether that was a response to some kind of scandal that may have occurred, I don't know. But makes you wonder. So her second marriage was in Idaho. Her third marriage at age 32 was in Sacramento, California in 1939. And her fourth marriage was in 1940 to a man named Virgil Warner. And that one didn't last long either, as she soon fell in love with a dashing officer named Leslie Lincoln. Yes, and between third and fourth, um, both of those gentlemen worked in California for the same lumber mill. And uh, it could well be that uh, one was a friend of the other, and she dumped one and left with the other, and they went to Oregon. What was that relationship like with Leslie Lincoln? Uh, did it seem like they were in love? Oh, well, he certainly was in love with her, and and she was in love with being married. and uh, uh, But for the most part, they were separated because this was during the war, World War II. And so uh, I think he was a lieutenant in, in, the, in the Army, and uh, he was off fighting the war, serving, and uh, she was uh, uh, left, left home and uh, during that time seemed to 
have quite an enjoyable lifestyle. She was getting his paychecks and uh, kind of free to go out and be as active socially as she wanted to be. And it was when he returned from the war and they had to cohabitate that things started to get a little tense. Yeah, things things did start to go south then. Uh, but he wasn't as aware of it. You know, they, they, well, that's not true. Uh, they had had some kind of a um, disagreement and he filed for divorce. But it was very quickly after that that he um, canceled that uh, attempt to divorce her and, and they reconciled and um, made up and tried to make a go of their marriage. Uh, at least he did. It was right about that time, not long after that, that she began corresponding with uh, Dr. Broadhurst. And it was during that time that she developed a drug addiction. Yes. Uh, she had been taking a drug, um, I believe it was called Nimbital. I, I'm sorry that uh, the exact name escapes me. I, I believe the drug was Nimbital. She was addicted to that drug, and uh, uh, the doctors had to treat her and, and help her cope with that addiction. So she reaches out to her old boyfriend, uh, W.D. Broadhurst, Dr. Broadhurst. What's the reason for her contacting him? Well, uh, I don't think it was anything medical. I believe that she simply tried to reestablish the romantic relationship that they had earlier on, at least the friendship rom uh, relationship. They corresponded back and forth a number of times. And uh, he, he also perhaps uh, drove through Sacramento and spent time with her. Although I, I don't think that I've got that fact confirmed 100%, but it appears to me that he did. And um, ultimately, uh, they met in Reno, and they met in uh, Reno in May of 1946, and uh, they got married in Reno and spent a, an exciting honeymoon weekend together in Reno. And after that weekend, he returned to Idaho to his medical practice and his ranches. He had two, a farm and a ranch a farm in Idaho and a ranch in eastern Oregon. He was quite wealthy. He went back to his work, and she returned to her husband in Sacramento to Leslie Lincoln. Now, within the first couple of exchanges uh, of, of telegrams, she lies to him. She tells him she's a widow. Right. She tells him she's about to inherit $3 million, and yes. she wants to know if he has an heir to his property. Doesn't that strike you as a strange question? I, I, I think that's very odd that she would ask that, but clearly she did uh, because he wrote back to her and said, I, you know, he says, I'm not married and have no children, therefore I have no heirs. Um, but she did lie about her wealth. She claimed that she had a wealthy aunt uh, who lived in Honolulu, who had died and bequeathed to her $3 million. And uh, I believe that the reason she created that lie was 
to set the doctor at ease with any thoughts that she might be a gold digger, that she might be after his wealth. Um, and of course, the reason she lied about being married or not is because he wouldn't have a relationship with a married woman. So she also lied about uh, the fact that claimed to be a widow when in fact she was not. Yes. So <laughs> one of the more interesting stories she tells him is that not only is she a widow, but that she is being stalked. Stalked by her deceased husband's evil twin brother. That's right. Yes. And uh, I believe she created that story to overcome any possible situation where uh, Leslie Lincoln might appear on the scene. She could claim that that was the evil twin brother that was trying to get her $3 million inheritance from her aunt. And um, so she's, uh, you can see that she's got this, this whole uh, deception well thought out. Uh, she put a lot of thought into what to do, what to say, how to portray herself, and how to approach this doctor. Right. Her story was that her deceased husband, Leslie Lincoln, had served in the same unit overseas during the war as his twin brother. And Leslie, she, she said, was the serious one. And his twin brother, uh, Lester, <laughs> Leslie and Lester, um, Lester was, was the cut-up, the jokester. And when Lester returned home from the war, minus his brother, he pretended that he was Leslie. He, he came home to Gladys and basically slipped right into his dead brother's life. <laughs> it's quite a story, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> of course, what's fascinating is that we learn at the end of the story that Leslie did not have a twin brother. In fact, Leslie had no brothers whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so uh, it was all just pure fiction in her brain. Yeah. Speaking of fiction, it, it seemed as though a lot of her fantasies were fueled by her love for motion pictures. Yes. Yes. Uh, she loved going to movies and... In fact, uh, a movie plays a pretty big role in this whole story because it was um, the movie that she went to. Um, Eric, I forget the name of that movie. Leave Her to What? It was Leave Her to Heaven with Her to Heaven. Jean Tierney. That's right. So this movie, Leave Her to Heaven, is uh, was... You know, a first-run movie is in the movie theaters at that time. Kind of bad timing for the doctor. But it was a story about uh, a husband and wife that owned a diner. And they took in a man as an employee. And the wife fell in love with the employee. And they together plotted to murder her husband and take over the diner, I guess. And went to that movie with a man that later became her seventh husband, who was a very young man. She was quite a bit older than him. Uh, see, she was born in 
1906, and he was born in 1923. So, um, you know, he there's like 17 years difference between them. But she somehow or other had fallen in love with this young man. He was a young cowboy that worked on the ranch. And uh, she persuaded him to commit the crime. And so she didn't actually commit the crime of murder herself, but she persuaded this young man to do it. We will be back after some brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. We are back again. So Leslie Lincoln, her husband, happens to discover a couple of letters sent by Willis Broadhurst, WD, to Gladys. He opens the letters, he's shocked, he's blindsided, and so he again asks her for a divorce, this time adding bigamy as a reason why he wants nothing to do with her. That's right. It was a, an additional cause for divorce. And, of course, back in 1945, 1946, 
divorces were more difficult to come by than they are today, and you had to have just cause. And so that just gave him one more just cause for divorce. And she panics. She realizes she has to run damage control now. Uh, she, She did not want WD to know she was already married for obvious reasons. So she leaves California and joins WD at his ranch. Um, can you tell us where exactly his ranch was? Yes. Uh, the doctor lived in Caldwell, Idaho, which is about a 30, 40-minute drive from the Oregon border. And then um, another, I guess, three-quarters of an hour, an hour. I'd have to time it. I don't remember the exact distance. But in eastern Oregon, there's a small town called Jordan Valley. And uh, a lot of sheep herding went on around there. A lot of Basques live in that area, raising sheep. And uh, he had bought a cattle ranch in eastern Oregon. It's a big ranch, worth a lot of money. And uh, uh, they lived in Caldwell part of the time, but they spent a lot of time at the ranch because uh, this all occurred in in the summer of 1946. And, uh, you know, there was haying to be done and cattle to be rounded up. And so they were engaged in a lot of traditional ranch activities. It's really interesting terrain, eastern Oregon. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's hilly, you know, small hills, a lot of sagebrush, a lot of ravines. Um, it, it's beautiful country if you like that kind of country. You know, uh, there's, there's valleys that have water. And there's, they can grow a lot of grass in those valleys. But uh, where there's no water, it's mostly sagebrush and tumbleweeds. So she moves in with WD. And it's initially an idyllic sort of honeymoon period for them. She fits right in. She feels comfortable riding a horse. She seems enthralled by this Western lifestyle. But soon she feels pressure because word has gotten to her that the local sheriff could soon serve her Lincoln's divorce papers. So she tells W.D. she needs to go back to California. That's right. She had to settle this divorce issue because if the doctor found out that she was still married to another man when she married him, that would have been the whole end of that marriage. And she was trying to to not let that happen in that way, at least. And so she just had to go to California. But the problem was she didn't drive. And I, I don't know whether she didn't drive because she just was never taught to drive or if it had something to do with her drug addiction. But for whatever reason, she couldn't drive. She needed somebody to drive her to California. So when she told Dr. Broadhurst that she needed to go down there and her excuse for going was to deal with some legal issues surrounding this $3 million inheritance, and she said she needed someone to drive her. He told her, well, yeah, I can I can drive you, but I can only be gone for a few days. We're still in the middle of uh, the haying operation here. And uh, she says, oh, no, I need at least a couple of weeks. 
And he said, I can't be gone that long. So she suggested one employee uh, on the ranch to be her driver. But the doctor wasn't too keen on that man being alone with his wife for a couple of weeks. So then she suggested this young Alvin Williams, who was a cowboy, a young man, about uh, about 23 years old, and uh, uh, suggested maybe he could drive her. And the doctor decided that, you know, he was so much younger than her that he didn't pose much of a threat. So he asked Alvin to drive his wife down to California, and they were going to be gone two weeks, no longer. W.D. seemed a little naive, don't you think? Yeah, naive is sure accurate. I think naive is absolutely true. Uh, You know, he's a doctor. He's a wealthy man. I don't think he's stupid. I don't think he... I don't think he's totally unwise to the world, but he sure was unwise to the nature of his wife. And he trusted her implicitly. At least he made himself trust her implicitly. Uh, I think he decided in his own heart that was how he needed to react to her as her demands and her uh, actions became more and more strange and more and more troublesome. So within the first few nights of them being alone together, she basically seduces him. That's right. In fact, I think it started the first night. They drove uh, uh, to Reno that night, but they didn't. uh, They went into town and watched a movie, and then they came back and... uh, bunked out, camped out in the car, slept in the car that first night. And she began that night seducing him. And uh, by the second night, I think they were sexually involved with each other. And thus begins her process of ensnarement. Um, Her goal is to control Elvin by the end of their trip. That's right. And this trip, which was supposed to take two weeks, they were gone, I believe it was six weeks. And they were having a wonderful time. They were driving around California, visiting her family, going to visit friends, going to dances, going to um, uh, kind of a summer camp that her brother operated. And uh, meanwhile, checking into hotels as husband and wife everywhere they went. And she's constantly asking W.D. to wire more money to her. That's right. Uh, They're doing this on the doctor's dime. And so uh, he has to send her money so they can continue their their escapades in California. At some point, right, uh, it's almost seven weeks that they're gone. At a certain point, she begs W.D. to join them. She tells him she uh, misses him so much. That's right. Uh, they, were, they were staying at that time in, in Truckee, California, at her brother's uh, summer camp, campground, and uh, there was a rodeo going on in the area, and she wanted the doctor to come down for the rodeo. And Alvin, the young cowboy, was going to compete in the rodeo. 
I don't know why she did that. And I don't know what her purpose was for asking the doctor to come down. And he, he went down to California with the full intent of bringing his wife back. They'd been, been gone much longer than the two weeks that she said they would be gone. And he was really distressed about that. He intended to bring her back. But he came home empty-handed. Uh, came home on a bus. She put him on a bus. She's driving his nice car. And and she puts him on a bus to go back to Caldwell. It's just, it's, it's, it's hard to explain why he put up with this. Right. Somewhere along the way together, she and Elvin see another film. This time it's The Postman Always Rings Twice. Uh, Another film she becomes obsessed with. And it's at this point that she begins sort of poking Elvin, um, offering hints that she would like to see her husband murdered. And... Furthermore, she would like Elvin to help her do it. Yes, that's right. And and uh, her statement to Elvin is, you know, the, the protagonist in that movie had been killed. And her statement to Elvin that night was, boy, it's too bad that doesn't happen to the doctor. So she begins, as you say, kind of poking and prodding Elvin to commit murder and to, to murder the doctor. And he is not at all keen on this idea. He does not want to do it. He is uh, opposed to it. He does not want to commit murder. He likes the doctor, actually. He's fond of the doctor. The doctor was his employer and had treated him well. But she just keeps working his case. And she persuades him, finally, to kill the doctor after they get home. And they spend the rest of the trip planning how they're going to go about killing the doctor how they're going to dispose of the body, how they're going to hide the evidence and things like that. One of the arguments she makes to him, she tells him, uh, I know that committing murder is against the law of God, but we've already broken one of the other Ten Commandments. We've committed adultery. (laughs) So why not break another? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. She's kind of like, well, we're already sinning, so let's just sin a little bit more. Won't make much difference. (laughs) Uh, So in the meantime, Leslie Lincoln is looking for her. That's right. He's starting to track him down, and he actually does. He hires a private investigator, and, and he does find them, and finally is able to serve divorce papers on her, which... As Alvin and Gladys drive off, she tosses out the window. And she, of course, tells Elvin that this guy that has shown up is her dead husband's evil twin brother, Lester. <laughs> That's right. She convinces everyone of that. And But, but Lester, Leslie, I should say, Leslie had met the requirement of law that she be served with these papers. Once he's served, now he can proceed with his his case for divorce, for divorce against her. Right. So eventually they make their way back to the ranch, and it's uncomfortable, to, to say the least, when they finally arrive. Yeah, yeah, the doctor wants Alvin out of there. 
you know, Alvin's been with his wife for seven weeks. He's not a bit happy about that. He wants Alvin to disappear, but Gladys keeps bringing Alvin back to the house, you know, has him come in and, and, uh, have meals with them. And, and she even won't eat with the doctor because she's waiting for Alvin to show up. And when Alvin shows up, they have dinner together. Uh, she just seems to be totally uncaring about the feelings of the doctor. And I guess it's important to note that living with the doctor is his nephew, Floyd, and Floyd's wife, Lola. Yeah, Floyd Adams and his wife, Lola, and they have uh, a couple of little children, too, a boy and a little girl, quite young. But uh, the doctor is actually in the process of retiring from his chiropractic work. Uh, he'd, he, you know, he'd made good money as a doctor, and he had these ranches. And his desire was to live out his days on the ranch and uh, be a rancher and raise cattle and enjoy that uh, Western lifestyle. That was his goal. And so um, his nephew Floyd who was also a chiropractor, had moved in with them, and um, they'd made an arrangement for Floyd to take over the practice. So uh, once they're back, uh, again, it's extremely uncomfortable. Uh, WD is miffed that Elvin is living in the house. He wasn't living in the house when he left with his wife. He was just a regular old cowhand among many. And he's also already paid Elvin a large amount of money for escorting his wife to California and back. And now he just wanted Elvin out of their lives, but Elvin would not leave. And, and Gladys was keeping him around. So he was in a tough spot there, uh, Dr. Broadhurst was. You know, he was trying, he's still working hard to try to save his marriage and and convince himself that his wife was good to him, even though she wasn't. He kept trying to persuade himself that she was. And uh, um, it, it made it very difficult for him to see all these evidences of her inappropriate behavior right in front of his eyes and still claim, I love you and I always will and uh, anything you want in the world I'll give to you. He was smitten, but in a very strange way. So Elvin's finally gone. Uh, he, he goes back to his parents' house. And W.D. goes on an elk hunting trip with his nephew and some others, leaving Gladys and Lola alone. And that's when Elvin promptly returns. That's right, uh, uh, this was an annual event, this elk hunting trip, and the doctor considered not going on it, but he decided to go ahead and go because um, it, it was just something they'd, a whole group of guys had done annually for a number of years. And so they headed off for this week-long elk hunting trip. And uh, as soon as they're gone, I mean, the same day, Alvin shows up again, and Gladys sets him up with a bed in a, a room that adjoined her bedroom her and the doctor's bedroom. and uh, But there was a window between the two rooms. She pushed his bed up against the window, and she pushed her bed up against the window on the other side of the wall, 
And, uh, you know, they were essentially side by side there in their sleeping arrangements. And Lola is witness to their intimate interactions. She seems totally oblivious to Lola and and doesn't seem to think that Lola would ever tell anybody what's going on, or maybe she didn't care if anybody knew. But Lola was right there observing it, and of course, uh, her testimony at Gladys's murder trial was very significant because of all the all that she observed during this time. So again, another awkward situation arises when WD returns home and he ends up spending his first night on the couch yeah. because he discovers the sheets on their bed have been, in his words, uh, soiled. Yeah. Yep. He, I think he came home wondering what was going on during his absence. And he saw that, um, you know, the sheets weren't clean and he just, he just wasn't going to uh, sleep in that bed that night. It's obviously frustrating reading this. Uh, frustrating for you, I know. If WD suspected these things, why didn't he just boot Elvin? Why continue letting him come back? That's right. And, and why didn't he have a, you know, serious conversation with Gladys about what's going on here and why are you acting this way? I don't see any evidence that he ever did approach her in that fashion and have any kind of a a confrontation with her. Uh, Things soon start to escalate for Gladys as far as the plotting of her husband's murder. Gladys is cold-shouldering her husband He suspects things are going on, doesn't say anything, lots of tension between them, and she just seems intent on killing him as quickly as possible. That's right. But before she gets there, she convinces him to go to his lawyer and change his will. And, you know, again, here's a perplexing fact. Here's a guy whose wife is acting strange and that you're having deep concerns about, and she insists that you go to a lawyer and have a new will drawn that cuts everybody else out of his will and leaves everything to her. And he does it. He, he does what she asks. And he doesn't have any heirs, but he was going to leave his estate to his sisters, right? Yes, that that was, uh, I don't know what was in his previous will, but uh, surely it was his sisters and his nephew Floyd that were the logical heirs that he had since he had no children of his own. And um, uh, whoever he had in that will got aced out. You know, uh, Gladys insisted he go and write a new will, leaving everything to her, which he did. And then... Then she and uh, Alvin really begin to put their plans to murder their doctor, murder Dr. Broadhurst, into, into action. They've considered a number of 
um, ways to kill him. They thought about trying to kill him up on the elk hunt, but threw that out as not practical and came up with a few other ideas. And finally, they decided the right way to do it was to waylay the doctor as he traveled between Caldwell and his ranch in eastern Oregon in Jordan Valley. And so that's the plan. And so now uh, Gladys is poised, just waiting for the doctor to say, I'm going to the ranch tomorrow so that she can then send Floyd out to waylay the doctor en route to the ranch. And so the plan was for him to go out there and uh, park on the side of the road, um, raise the hood on his car, and wait for the doctor to come by and flag him down out there in the middle of the sagebrush, and there he could kill the doctor. Uh, but before they did that, they had to go buy a car for him. He didn't even own a car. So they went and found an old Model T, and they bought it for $200, and uh, Alvin uh, used that to go out there and stand by the side of the road. But the doctor doesn't cooperate very well. You know, He goes out there in the wee hours of the night and pulls over and waits for the doctor, but the doctor doesn't leave first thing in the morning. He takes care of one errand and then another errand, and then when he does head out, he drives to the next town down the road and stops at a cafe and goes in and has breakfast with a guy. And so uh, by the time he gets to where Alvin's been waiting, it's afternoon. And Alvin's been sitting there for hours. And meanwhile, uh, a farmer and his hired hand had driven past Alvin about three times and seen him there sitting on the side of the road. Uh, they'd even asked him if he needed help, and he said no. But Alvin's sitting there waiting for the doctor. So the doctor finally heads down that isolated piece of road. He, he sees Elvin. That must have been weird. He offers Elvin help, and Elvin accepts. And he, he tells the doctor that he thinks his gas line is clogged, right? That's right. And uh, when he's there, when the doctor arrives, he's remembering what... Gladys had told him, and when she sent him on this errand of, of evil, she said, get up there, get up there, be there when he comes, and for God's sake, don't mess. And so Alvin's got, he's got a, a 410 single-shot shotgun, and he's got a great big old wrench, and uh, the doctor comes by, he flags the doctor down, the doctor walks over, to the front of the car and bends over and looks down into the engine compartment to see if there's anything he can do. And Alvin, he's still hesitant to do it, but he can hear Gladys's voice in his head saying, for God's sake, don't fail me. And if you do, don't come back. So he overcomes his hesitance and crashes this huge wrench into the doctor's head, breaking his skull. But that didn't kill the doctor. The doctor reeled, staggered, finally kind of got his senses back and, and realized that Alvin had attacked him. And he rushed Alvin and he said that he was going to kill Alvin. Whereupon Alvin pulled out his shotgun and shot the doctor and that did kill the doctor. 
We will return momentarily after a brief break. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. As promised, we have returned. Now, this was a little strange in reading this. So all we know about what really happened came from Elvin. The only other person there was the doctor, and of course he died. Right. So right. Elvin clubbed him with a wrench, didn't kill him. Elvin told police that the doctor then pulled out a knife, charged him, and threatened to kill him. So it seems as though Elvin was kind of suggesting that he was defending himself from the doctor, even though he had tried to kill him. I was just wondering if he was kind of hoping he, he in, in explaining what happened, that he might be able to twist this story just a little bit to make it sound like he had killed the doctor at the end, again, in the process of defending himself. Yes, I think he had some hopes that that, uh, that would play out, but the, the state wasn't buying that for a bit and because he, he went there with the intent of killing the doctor. 
But one of the original plans between Elvin and Gladys was to both beat and shoot WD, right? Yeah, I, I, they had a lot of discussions about uh, how the murder would, would occur, how they would actually do this deed. And, uh, um, and so they, they jointly made all these plans together. You're right. So, so this happened on October 14th, 1946, correct? Yep, that's right. October 14th, 1946. And, and Gladys and WD were married on May 20th of 46. He was dead within five months after marrying Gladys. So what did Elvin do with the doctor's body? Well, Alvin had a hard time. W.D. was a big man, and Alvin couldn't lift him up and load him into his trunk. He just didn't have the strength to lift the doctor as dead weight. So he rolled the doctor into the barrel pit on the side of the road and covered him up with shrubs uh, and bushes and uh, waited for darkness. And once it was dark, he went back to the site, uncovered the body, and tried dragging him, dragging the body uh, up and loading it into his car, and he still had a hard time. So what he did is he found a place where he could back his car into the barrel pit, and that would lower um, his rear end, and that way he was able to finally kind of roll the doctor into his trunk. Once he did that, he uh, uh, took the doctor way out into... Uh, the deserted land that's nothing but uh, sagebrush and ravines, and he dumped the doctor's body into a ravine and covered it up with sagebrush. Then he went to another location and uh, broke his shotgun up and stuffed it down a badger hole. And then he went back to the ranch in Jordan Valley, and he was a shaken man. Uh, he looked terrible. Lola testified that when he arrived, he just looked terrible. Well, he did because he had just murdered a man. So when W.D. did not return home, that was, of course, a concern for his nephew, Floyd. So Floyd called the sheriff and filled him in on Gladys's recent suspicious behavior. Yes, Floyd also uh, gathered a bunch of neighbors together, and they went out uh, looking for the doctor, and they found his car fairly quickly. And so his car was there, but he wasn't. And, and actually, uh, there, there's one fact here that I kind of overlooked mentioning. The doctor uh, was driving his pickup truck, and he had a horse trailer attached, and he had a horse that he was taking with him to his ranch in, in Jordan Valley. And so in addition to disposing of the doctor's body, he also uh, had to dispose or do something with the truck. So he drove the truck way out in the deserted sagebrush country and parked it there. But he felt sorry for the horse. He didn't want to leave the horse sitting in there in that trailer without any ability to eat or drink. So he took the horse out of the trailer and tied it to a big sagebrush plant. Then he hiked back to the road where his car was, and, and that's when he drove, drove off and returned to the ranch. Uh, 
Well, uh, the first thing that happened was that horse, after being tied to that brush for a while, got impatient and kind of jerked and finally jerked the reins loose and maybe pulled a piece of sagebrush out of the ground, still tied to the reins. And uh, uh, he went trotting off and was he was running down the middle of the road when one of the neighboring ranchers saw him. And that was actually the first indication that something had gone wrong was finding that horse. Right. So the sheriff goes to the ranch to question Gladys. And she has an alibi for Elvin. She says he was with her the entire day. Yeah. Yeah, she tries to give Elvin an alibi and um, comes up with several different uh, possible perpetrators of the crime. Of course, they aren't even sure what crime has happened yet because they have not found the body. All they know is the doctor is missing. And uh, um, so the sheriff is immediately uh, suspicious of her. Just her attitude and the way she acted struck him as quite odd. And so uh, he kept a close eye on her. And then when she saw Gladys, when the sheriff saw Gladys and Alvin together, he also uh, took a real interest in Alvin and began kind of questioning him and keeping close to him. And then Gladys produces a note, an ominous sounding note, a note that she says she is sure is from Leslie Lincoln's evil twin brother, Lester. Yes, and and uh, he basically says, uh, uh, if you don't watch out, the same thing will happen to you as happened to the doctor. And he signed it Sweet Pea. And she said that that was a nickname that Lester had used, Sweet Pea. So she claimed that uh, the evil twin had written that letter. She was trying to throw suspicion onto the evil twin brother, who didn't really exist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't you think it's strange that it never occurs to her that the sheriff is going to find out that there really is not an evil twin brother? <laughs> yes. Uh, that that occurred to me quite a few times reading this. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, law law officers are pretty smart people, and and they do a lot of research, especially when you're talking about a murder. And uh, you, you know this this idea of the evil twin brother might have worked with the doctor, but it would never fly with the law officers. And yet she sticks to that story. And eventually, it it's proven in court that. Gladys penned that note. That's right. They they found that it matched, the paper was written on, matched some papers that had been torn up and stuffed down the heat duct in, the, in her bedroom. So they knew it was her. So she sticks to her story. But Elvin, uh, far more malleable and seemingly sorrier than her for what has happened, uh, quickly caves and confesses to the sheriff. Yes, he does. I think he's horrified at what he's done. Uh, like I say, he truly did like the doctor, did not want to commit this murder. Now that he's allowed himself to be persuaded to do it, his remorse is great. And to on top of that, he's only 23 years old. He's a young guy, not very experienced in the world. And 
uh, I think, was absolutely terrified when he was being questioned by the sheriff and the DA. And it's around this time, right, that your grandfather enters the story. Yes, uh, they hired my grandfather to be her attorney. Um, the interesting thing is she the, the, the murder occurred in Oregon, and it took them a while to figure out whether that was true or not because it was so close to the Oregon-Idaho border. Once they got Alvin to confess and show him where the murder occurred, uh, then they knew that it was an Oregon case, not an Idaho case. Um, and she had a lawyer in Idaho that she'd used, but she also had a lawyer in California she'd used, but uh, she needed an Oregon lawyer. And my grandfather practiced law in Ontario, Oregon, which is a town right on the border of Oregon with Idaho. And uh, so she hired my grandfather as her lead attorney for her defense. What stories were passed along by your your grandfather to your family? What what memories did he have about representing her? Well, uh, one story, that, it's not in the book either, but one story I recall is that at some point the prosecution tried to imply that my grandfather uh, was romantically involved with Gladys while he was representing her in this murder trial. And he thought that was hilarious because, um, you know, he was so much older than her and was happily married to my grandmother. And so that that's one of the funny stories in our family that, that we passed on that granddad never did such a thing. Uh, but the other thing is, the other family tradition is, uh, when she was convicted, what we said is she got life and we got the ranch. And that's not really true. But after that trial, my grandfather and my father, who were partners in law practice in Ontario, they built a, a new office building for their practice. And I'm sure that the money they made from that trial helped pay for that office. But uh, we didn't really get the ranch, but um, she did get life. Yeah, we should probably explain that even though she would be convicted, sentenced to life in prison, she still received part of his estate after his murder. Well, uh, it's interesting. I I don't know why it was that way back in 1946 and 1947 when all this stuff was being sorted out. Um, the murder was in 46, but the trial was in the spring of 47. But, um, you know, the doctor had left a will, leaving everything to her. His sisters contested that will and uh, said that because she had committed murder, that uh, she should not be the beneficiary of his will. Now, I don't know why they didn't win that case, but they didn't actually go to trial. They settled. But you would think that if they'd gone to trials, they would have won the case. But, uh, you know, I don't know what the laws were back in those days, but they actually settled uh, the sisters got about a half of the estate, and Gladys got about a half of the estate. And so uh, that was good for her because that enabled her to have the money to pay for her defense team and and uh, whatever other needs she may have had. I mean, this case was going to be difficult for your grandfather to win, right? 
I mean, Elvin Williams absolutely spilled his guts on the witness stand. It, it was going to be an uphill battle. Yes, uh, I think the main argument that the defense tried to put forth was that Alvin, being a co-conspirator, should not be allowed to testify, that he that the law did not permit him to testify uh, against Gladys. But they lost that argument. The, the judge, Judge Biggs, who lived in the next block down from me when I was growing up, uh, he was the presiding judge, and Judge Biggs ruled against that argument and allowed Alvin's testimony to be admitted into the trial. Um, they did try to appeal it, but the, the appeal was denied, so, um, so Gladys never did win her case. But what's interesting is, in 1947, 1946 is when the murder occurred, 1947 is when the trial occurred, at that time... Oregon had a law that said if you are convicted of first-degree murder, you automatically will be sentenced to death in the gas chamber. And the only exception is if the jury recommends life in prison instead of gas chamber execution, that you would get life in prison. And because Gladys was a woman... The jury did recommend life instead of the gas chamber for her. And apparently that was pretty standard. If a woman was convicted of first-degree murder, they would recommend life in prison. Now, Alvin, of course, he's the man who committed the murder. And Alvin would have been convicted of first-degree murder if he'd gone to trial. But um, because he turned state's witness... They plea bargained with him and allowed him to plead guilty to second-degree murder, which did not carry the death penalty and which had an automatic penalty of life in prison. So both Gladys and Alvin were sentenced to life in prison when they were convicted. And Alvin didn't have a trial. He just pled guilty and was sentenced. Right. And neither of them spent the remainder of their lives in prison, correct? You know, it's an amazing thing. Life doesn't mean life. I don't think it does today, and it didn't then. Uh, Gladys was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, and she served nine years in prison. She was uh, convicted in March of 47, and she was paroled in July of 56. So just a little over nine years in prison. That's hardly life. And Alvin, who actually committed the crime, he went to prison in April of 47 and was paroled in August of 57. So he spent 10 years in prison. Nine for Gladys, 10 for Alvin, both of them sentenced to life, but did not serve life. Uh, did we mention that Elvin and Gladys actually got married uh, while they were on the run? <laughs> no, no, we didn't. Uh, during their lovely trip to California, uh, that seven-week trip, they went to Reno kind of late in that trip, and they got married. Uh, Gladys married under a false name. She chose the name Elaine Hamilton, but uh, Alvin used his real name, and they were married. So she was 
She was married to Leslie Lincoln, who is husband number five, and she was married to Dr. Broadhurst, who is married husband number six, and she was married to Alvin Williams, who is husband number seven, all without benefit of a divorce of any of them, because even though Lester, excuse me, even though Leslie had filed for divorce, that divorce decree had not yet been granted. So she was married to three men at the same time, at least three, maybe more. And once she got out of prison, she got married again, right? <laughs> she did. Husband number eight was a guy named Leo O'Shea who lived in Sacramento. And and in the book, I, I had her write the same letter that uh, she wrote to Dr. Broadhurst to kind of initiate the contact. Um, those two letters are of my making. I, I created those two letters myself. We do not have her original letter that she contacted the doctor, only his response. So, um, uh, so those I did have to make up uh, just in order for the story to flow. But I believe because she married a guy in Sacramento, surely he was somebody that she had some sort of relationship back when she lived in Sacramento with Leslie Lincoln. That's my belief. Uh, it, it must have been really fun to write this book and, and share it with your family. Well, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun writing the book. Uh, one of the fun things for me was just trying to figure out how to find information about it. You know, I you Google it, and there's actually been a couple little short stories written about this trial uh, that were published years ago, but nothing as extensive as what I've written. So I had to figure out, how do I get information out of this? And number one question is, where is the trial transcript? And I had quite a difficult time finding it. I talked to the county clerk who gave me some ideas, and uh, she had me talk to somebody in, in the state capital of Oregon, in Salem, and they gave me some ideas. And ultimately, I found that trial transcript tucked away in a vault, in a vault box in, in the archives of the state of Oregon. And uh, I wanted to take them out and copy them, but they were like, oh, no, <laughs> you're not taking those out of here. But they did have a <laughs> photocopier there. So I spent a couple days there uh, in there using their photocopier and copying page after page of the, of the trial transcript. So I got the entire trial transcript, which just was uh, just full of information about the trial and about the, all the players in the trial, stuff that I'd never had heard of before. So it was hugely valuable. And that plus the letters, plus uh, finding out all the information online about Gladys's marriages, it all, all came together. It was quite fun. So I know your book is on Amazon, and I assume it can be ordered through local bookstores. Yes, uh, it's also available in Barnes & Noble, I think. But uh, this book is available both as a paperback book and as, a, I say both, three, three ways, as a paperback book, as an audio book, and as a, uh, uh, an e-book. You can read it on a Kindle or an e-book reader. Oh, th that's great. Audio books are always a, a, a nice option. Yes, and the, the gentleman that did the audio, that uh, read the book, 
did an excellent job. I was real pleased with the work he did. And of course, he was arranged for by my publisher. Oh, excellent. Well, well, thank you for spending some time with me today. Well, it's my honor. And thanks for reading my book and taking an interest in it. It it was fun for me to write. And and I enjoy when somebody reads it and and reads a very interesting story about a true event. My guest again has been Patrick Gallagher, author of Till Death Do Us, a true crime story of bigamy and murder. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.